Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You know, one of the biggest victims of this new age of information and uh, technology is going to be the relationship, right? And as a relationship coach, uh, I do believe it's something we need to pay close attention to. So it will be today's topic of the coach's corner. How do we how do we close the closeness gap? Many people are struggling um, feeling close to another person. They, they they feel lonely personally, and uh, you know interpersonally they feel like they just aren't close to their partner to their kids. Um, it's hard when everyone's sitting looking at their phones and no one's connecting and talking, you might start to feel like you don't matter, that you are irrelevant. And um, there's, it is a plague, quite honestly, and, and yet it's something that we, we can fix. But like our good guest Andrew Merle was just saying, you might need to make some choices, like the choice to put the phone away. And that's that's easier said, and I say it, and every time I say it, I notice that I, I still have a hard time putting my phone away because the phone makes it so I don't need to be vulnerable. I don't need to talk to anybody. I'm tired. Just once I pull it out, everyone kind of leaves me alone. But some of that then fosters this sense of loneliness. And uh, one of the things, there's a great book out there that I would highly recommend um, uh, called Stop Being Lonely. And it's um, uh, the Kira, Kira somebody. Let me find, look up her name. But it's in the book. Um, one of the ideas behind the concept of stop being lonely is what we really need to do is start to feel more um, more of an ability to get to understand the people around us. We really have to kind of step in and get uh, to understand who we are married to, who we are living with. Uh, Kira Asatryan is the author of the book, Stop Being Lonely, Three Simple Steps to Developing Close Relationships and Deep, or Close Friendships and Deep Relationships. But one of the interesting things she teaches is uh, don't just assume you understand the person you're with. And I did this yesterday with a, with a couple where I had them identify on a list of positive traits and negative traits um, what are their top, you know, eight you know, positive ways that they see themselves and what are some of the negative ways they see themselves that, that they in their in their head, in their heart of hearts, they really they feel this way. Uh, they they and and basically this couple had been arguing about a situation and um, we did this activity and then I had them turn to each other and talk about what they found. One person's uh, one of his top traits was loyalty. Another person's top trait, the female's top trait was um, just just uh, com- compassion and, um, you know, and, and just a sense of compassion for others. And what ends up happening is uh, the, the male's negative trait was stubbornness and the female's negative trait was confusion. So what ends up happening in their relationship is a lot of times the, the wife is compassionately serving her children while the husband is lonely and loyal and wondering why she isn't more loyal to him. And then they fight. And what was amazing is, is I had them start identifying how they both see themselves and how their partner sees themselves. It changes the entire discussion. 
he's not being stubborn because he hates her. He's being stubborn because that's just his weakness. And she doesn't get confused about not loving him or loving the kids. I mean, that confusion is not coming because she doesn't love him. It's coming because she's so compassionate. She's going to always take care of the one that's in the need. Well, then he has to create a need for her to be able to be compassionate. The power of if you want to be um, more connected to others is you've got to understand where they're coming from, from their frame of reference. If they're trying to do something and they want loyalty, you need to understand that. If they want more compassion, you need to understand that. Understanding somebody is the antidote to creating a closer relationship. So a little challenge for you. Put down the phones. Go try to understand each other. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Politics. We talk about it all the time. We spent the whole first hour of the show, if you missed it, reviewing uh, the Super Saturday and, you know, all the latest and greatest. But one of the things that I run into, because I have six children, and I'm trying to raise them in a healthy world, right? But my kids are all uh, from years of 10 years of age up to 22. And they're getting into this political race, every one of them. Uh, the other night we were watching one of the debates and every one of my kids from 10 up had questions about what's going on. They, they asked things like, why is Donald such a such a bully? You know, is Hillary Clinton going to jail because of her emails? I ask them, where do you guys get these ideas? And they say they're talking about it in school. So they're bringing up the debates in their school. And it dawned on me that um, – I probably need to be teaching my kids more about politics and about how this process works. So I put together some points about how to raise positive people instead of powerful politicians. I also realized that uh, there's probably no more political environment that exists than in the halls of a junior high school where it's, you know, the jocks versus the geeks versus the whatever, surfers, whatever you've got, the, the, the boarders, whatever you call them, the skaters. It's political. It's a crazy political world. And so here are three very basic lessons um, uh, that I try to teach my kids from what we're seeing in a debate, for example – and real-life situations that they can go use in their own world. Number one, actions speak louder than words, right? Let our actions do the talking, not our words. You'll notice some politicians can get up there and just talk about their, their results um, because they, they have results, or any of the candidates do. They talk about what they've done in their life that shows that they're a trustworthy candidate. Uh, some people, though, also try to use their words to cover up their past, Gandhi had a great quote that said, you can't talk your way out of something you behaved your way into. So if if you've had bad behavior in the past, try to talk all you want about it. It doesn't go away by you talking. It goes away by getting results. So positive people trust that their past is going to do the talking for them. They might need to you know share their past, but they don't need to exaggerate. They don't need to name call. They don't need to make stuff up about others which we see going on in this political debate. We, we, we don't have to be full of anger and name-calling in order to get and be seen. We also, you'll notice when people are starting to up the rhetoric, when they're starting to become more aggressive, when they speak louder, when their speech is faster, 
They're probably trying to distract you. They're getting hijacked, I call it, and they're distracting you from the real issue. So notice it. And I talk to my kids about it. A, a, a leader does this. A leader speaks this way. A leader doesn't talk about other people. They talk about their results. They talk about their goals. They don't have to tear down someone else's position. They can focus on their position instead of being calculated and, you know, name-calling. And we've talked about it on the show. In this last election, we've heard, heard about people's hands, hair, spray tan, sweatiness, their tone, all of it. Another rule is value people more than popularity and power. If you want to be an influential leader, then value people. Don't just value being popular. A healthy, positive person sees the inherent worth of everybody. They don't just see people as a voting block. They don't, know, they don't even try to break people into their groups. They try to see that all people are whole. They're all, they all have physical, social, emotional, spiritual needs. Our politicians break us into social groups by color, by race, or by, by gender, by, um, by how much income we make. We, we aren't just a bunch of groups. I'm more than my ethnicity. I'm more than my religion. I'm more than my gender. I'm a whole person. So see people as a whole. And also don't see people as just a means to your end. How many times do you feel like these politicians are taking you for granted because you're a means to them getting elected? And I think some of the anger we see in the country is the mere fact that we, we nominate you, we elect you, but we don't end up getting taken care of. I think that's why so many people are sick and tired of politics. People value the people. Value them for just being a fellow traveler on this earth, not somebody that's going to make you more popular. That, this goes on in high school, too. Whether you're a jock or a cheerleader or a skater or whatever, you've got to just learn to like people instead of using people to get what you want. Last rule I try to teach my kids is the confidence is going to always come from the inside out, not the outside in. That's exactly the opposite of what we see most of our politicians ex, you know, exhibiting. Their confidence comes from their last poll. How many times do the polls get brought up in this process? The person that is talking the most about the polls probably is the most insecure person. The poll is not the key, right? At some point, I need to get my confidence from the inside. Positive, healthy people get their confidence from knowing who they are, knowing what they believe in, having a belief system that they're living. Their confidence comes from being a good person who believes in certain principles and lives certain principles. And they'll stand by their principles even if they don't win the election even if they're not seen as popular. And that changes them on the inside. When we look at the politicians that are constantly shifting and changing, we worry about them. I also, by the way, worry about politicians that can't collaborate. You can still try to understand someone else's needs and live your principles and find some meeting place in the middle, something our, I think our, our politicians are struggling with. This isn't about polls. This isn't about popularity. But I know it is for a 14-year-old kid that wants to be popular with his peer group and might end up doing stupid things in order to get elected or in order to be brought into that peer group. What I'm afraid of, though, is we're seeing the same thing in our political world. Very basic stuff, right? Confidence comes from the inside out, not the outside in. Value people more than popularity. And actions speak louder than words. Oh, 
If I can teach it to my uh, my 12-year-old, my 15-year-old, we could probably teach it to our politicians. Wouldn't that be great? You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, this year's election has brought to light many issues that face our society today. Among those issues is the ongoing discussion of women, uh, not only in the workplace, but also in politics, with Hillary Clinton forging her way through the Democratic primaries. Many critics are questioning her ability to be likable. But does likability actually equal competence? Joining us today is Dr. Rosalind Barnett. She's a senior scientist at the Women's Studies Research Center at Brandeis University. And in her article co-written with uh, Carol Rivers uh, titled, uh, Must Hillary Be Likable? They discuss the issues and struggles that women face in business, politics, really in life today, um, about uh, maybe a double standard of how we see them. Dr. Rosalind Barnett, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Uh, so honored to have you. And uh, I know we, we struggled trying to get you getting our timing right with you, but we appreciate you making the time. This is this is an interesting subject for me um, because I, I was thinking the other day we had uh, maybe two females running for president. I, I don't even remember how many of the other number, 17, 16 men or so. Um, and. And I kept hearing that there was this double standard of how we would look at men versus how we would look at women. And in your article, you presented the research to us. Do we actually see a strong female differently than a strong male, or do we see them the same? Well, there's a fair bit of evidence to suggest that both men and women see uh, strong male and female people quite differently. So for a man to be strong is to be powerful, to be admired, to be competent. For a woman, a a strong woman is often seen as as mean and nasty, as unfeminine, as not to be liked, as not to be trusted. And we see that all over the place in this this year, especially with with Hillary Clinton, because everyone, not everyone, but most people agree that she's very competent. Right. Uh, That her her credentials are not really questioned. The issue comes up with this issue of subjective likability. So for women... Competent women tend to be seen as unlikable, uh, but for men, competent men are seen as quite likable. And 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 it's it's by both genders, right? So even yeah. women and men see competent men as competent and likable, but they don't necessarily. And women don't necessarily see uh, competent women as likable. That's correct. Wow, we're all part we're all part of this culture, you know. And like it or not, you know, we share the stereotypes that. That flood us all over the place. So, you know, um, strong women are seen as, as forceful, nasty, uh, just not anyone you want to be hanging out with. And then I guess we call that term likable, right? Yeah. They're, they're likable. If they, if they deviate from what's expected, you know, the female stereotype, they step outside those those lines. They're too strong. They're too forceful. Whatever. I mean, they're seen as because they violated the norm for the gender norm, they're seen as untrustworthy and 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 uh, nasty and not not a nice person. Hmm. And then, so the, male, the female stereotype really operates here, where the male stereotype works in men's favor because part of that stereotype is to be assertive, is to be strong, is to be a leader. 
So when men are acting that way, they are conforming with their stereotype. So it's a positive. That is a positive violation. Well, well, and then all, and again, to me, it just seems to add up to the numbers. I mean, we have now we have one one super strong female candidate, a likely a likely nominee, um, Mm -hmm. running still against six men. But the big issue we keep hearing with Hillary, and again, Hillary, I think is is she's it's different too because a lot of people have opinions about Hillary from other parts of her life. But it, what you're saying in reality, this is still running, this double bind she's in is still running underneath in our psyche. Absolutely. So this would be more specific. Um, you know, the number of people who think that some of the Republican male candidates are not very likable. Right. But it doesn't seem to affect their popularity. Right. They're, they're, you know, they're just, it doesn't matter. You know, they can say whatever and their poll numbers keep going up and up. You can't even imagine Hillary if she thought those things, saying them, and not taking an enormous hit. In fact, if, if you look at this, um, you know, how you want to look at it, but, you know, all the people on the stage, the, the candidates, have in the past done things that, and even, and even doing them now. Right. Some people might think are unsavory or a little bit, you know, not so nice. And it doesn't affect anything with men. No. Well, I mean, and, and it, it almost seems to embolden them. You know, it almost makes them more more strong, or maybe it gives them a false sense of competency. We see them just because they're bold. We see that as maybe. strong. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's more macho. I don't know how people perceive it, but if it's a male, you know, he's, he's macho, he's strong, he's uh, take charge, and all those kinds of things that work for their in their favor. So it's, it's a part of the thing where it's also very hard to change it. How do you correct it? Because you know, it's so much a part of how we operate in the world. It's yeah. hard to try to be likable, whatever that means. You know, I, I think that it's really, really tough to counter these entrenched notions. Well, and is it tough too? Because we live in the United States, where this is these entrenched notions. Uh, another part of that is our elections are so personality oriented, mm-hmm. right? And yeah, that's right. they drag on and on. So. Everything that people said 25 years ago when they were, you know, whatever, in the right. game, comes out, comes back. And you have time to go over all these gaps and dissect them. In other countries, you know, you have a two-week uh, period right. of campaigning. I think, I think I'm right about this, but very recently Canada passed an election, and it, it was uh, considered to be outrageously long. It was like six weeks or four <laughs> weeks, you know, to set a record for lengthy campaigning. Oh. Here it's a year and a half or something, and it does not stop. Yeah. I'd give anything for that, wouldn't you? <laughs> to just be done. <laughs> well, and two, and I mean, I guess too. You're they're all also like in a parliamentary election. They're um, they're being their parties are so behind them that it's really the party that can get them elected, not just the one person. And and it seems like because I sit here and I think, okay, so if Hillary uh, isn't elected as president, who's the next female? Yeah. And I can't even I can't even think of one. I mean, I can think of a bunch that would try, but none that would have the depth that she has. Really, you know, it's, it's, it's time, timing with our country is embroiled in so many issues internationally. The world is such a, such a mess. It's, you know, everywhere you look, there's problems here, and there's problems there. To have someone who's been involved in one way or another with all these leaders, who they, she can walk into a room and have so much gravitas. Uh, you know, and and uh, carry the prestige of our country forward. And you compare that with some other people who, you know, just would not have anything like that impact. I find this startling, but you know, she still has this other issue that where we go back to the beginning of our talk, 
when she's seen as competent in this country, I think it's probably true. It's not true in other countries. That that's, that has a negative internet, uh, uh, overtone to it. It's really quite remarkable. I'm just thinking about Angela Merkel. You know, yeah. no one would say that she's not competent, and no one would say she's not strong. But you know, that's that's the issues that play out here, taking apart every little word and and putting her down. Just says, I don't think it happens there. Hmm. I don't think so. I tell you, anecdote I heard on the, uh, the radio one morning. Uh, so this is a, a German uh, newsman, I guess he was. Maybe no, maybe he's a German citizen with his daughter, eight years old, and they were they were um, getting onto a public transportation, and they had an announcement about Angela Merkel, and she, it was going in the background. The little girl turned to her father and said, "Daddy, can a man be chancellor?" Hmm. <laughs> in her life, only women have been. Chancellor. That's all that she had seen. Isn't that interesting? So it is. So it really is cultural. Absolutely. You know, here we have never had a woman in a position like that. So we just always have the stereotypes and all this other stuff that fills the the void. You know, you're, one of the things that you uh, talked about, I think, in the as director of the Barbara Lee Family Foundation, was uh, the study that they did on 2010 gubernatorial contests. Do you remember that when women opposed each other? The more likable candidate won in nine out of ten contests. Yeah. But when yeah. two men ran against each other, favorability didn't predict the outcome. It didn't matter if they were likable. Right. Well, that's, the, that's the issue here. You know, the, the, the rules for um, advancing women are very different than those for advancing men. And these are unconscious rules because no one sits down. No, right. But they're unconscious. In fact, I think one of the ways to, to capture some of this is to articulate it for people to say, wait a minute, because I, I hear it, I mean, you hear it too, people say all the time that you know, Hillary's not likable, and to say, well, just what do you mean by that? Yeah. What, 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 are the data, what does that mean? And just have people stop and reflect rather than just repeat you know, what's said over and over again. And then they have very little to say. You know, um, she has a warm smile. What, what, are you, mm-hmm. what, what's, what are the data here? And people just they'll say, oh, you know. You know, yeah, and, and then they then maybe they sometimes just go to well, she sounds shrill, and we'll right. we'll we'll well, get into the communication of all of this in the next break. But um, yeah. I mean, but what we do is we just kind of go to uh, kind of I guess what is our gut feeling, but our gut feeling is probably a deep bias. Oh, I'm sure. Well, it's certainly not because we have experience with female heads, heads of our country. Mm-hmm. We, <laughs> we have a long record to point to and say, oh, yeah, well, she was our president for five years or six or eight, and she was terrible. We don't have anything like that. No, we don't. Illusion and inference and so that, forth, which is I, very strong. It's not true. I was just thinking of who who is the strongest female that I found likable uh, person in our in our political system in the last few years, and it was Justice Sotomayor. It's like one yeah. of the only one, but and super likable, I think. Yeah. And yet, and super strong, and, and yet we won't hear from her because she's a justice, really. Well, I'll tell you an anecdote from my life. I, uh, I'm a clinical psychologist, and I was uh, in training in Boston, and I was moving out to uh, Cincinnati, Ohio for a, a little while, and I was transferring to uh, the VA hospital there, and the head of the department, who I report to, was a woman. And my colleagues in Boston, most of them were men, were always old, and they were very friendly to me, very, very supportive. And they warned me, I mean, to a person, oh, watch out for her, she's tough, she's a, she's da 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 da. They're really, really, really awful. And so, of course, I'm, you know, sort of quaking in my boots. Yeah. Going to meet this <laughs> and she was the nicest person. She was <laughs> absolutely the nicest person and so supportive. So that's the issue. 
she was very competent, very strong, and they immediately inferred, they didn't know her, that she was unlikable, a really nasty, you know, piece of work. She's a <laughs> tough I cookie. Stunned. I was stunned at the contrast because she was perfectly fine. But, uh, you know, that's what they, they were trying to be helpful to me by warning me. Uh, about all this. And this is, this is, it's interesting. So you see it, you saw it in the educational world. We see it in the political world. Also, um, Sheryl Sandberg, COO of Facebook, in her book, Lean In, she brought it up as well. And we won't use the word she used, but when women are seen as, you know, too strong, too aggressive, too. Uh, I guess too shrill or tough. We we call them a name that that is seemingly unique to the female, and I mean it's sad that they even have their own negative name. You know what I mean? That is just derogatory, and yeah. I mean, and even political candidates have used it. So it's uh. oh, absolutely, yeah. But I, I and I I want to bring it up because. I mean, it's it's one thing to just say she's a female. We need to vote for her because she's a female, which as yeah. being a child of a single mother and three sisters, I get that <laughs> to to the degree that I can get it. Except if there's really also a bias, which it totally feels like and seems like there is, um, it needs to be talked about. So at least we can put it out there and have people thinking about, do they do this? Do they judge people this way? And you won't get to that unless you step back and think about it because – it's so routinized. We need to say these things. Yeah. And it's in the media and it's everywhere. So that's why I think uh, I'm glad you're doing this program. You need people to say, to think about it a little bit. Say, wait a minute, am I doing that? Yeah. Ooh, I don't want to be doing that. Yeah. You know, and that's not say, let me just take a harder look and then reflect on what they're doing and, and um, see what they come up with. I mean, if, if her, if her likability really, you can tie it to other issues, then at least tie it to the issues, but make sure you've explored the issues. Don't yeah, just absolutely. don't just use code, right? <laughs> just right. Code talk. Exactly right. Well, let's do this. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Rosalind Barnett, and uh, she is uh, helping us understand a little bit, uh, actually, a lot more about this uh, hidden bias that we may have about women when they get when they are strong, when they come off competent. Many times, they they seem to automatically take um, the 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 role in our minds as unlikable. And uh, she's walking us through how we might be able to um, see through some of this, understand it, and maybe even prevent some of it in our own lives. We're going to take a break. We'll come back. Stick with us, folks. We're talking about likability and gender. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. To the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is Dr. Rosalind Barnett. She is a senior scientist at uh, the Women's Studies Research Center at Brandeis University. She's also directed major projects for the Sloan Foundation, the National Science Foundation, and the National Institute for Mental Health, among others. She's co authored uh, the seven books about women, men, work, and society, including Life Prints, which was funded by the grant for the National Science Foundation. Um, she is, uh, I think, a wonderful resource for us to understand the uh, this dynamic going on. Um, we see it with Hillary Clinton. She, uh, I guess, sadly is 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 you know probably suffering the consequence of some of this about likability and the research we've been talking about on the show 
is uh, simply that the more um, the more competent a female appears to be, the less likable her she is to others, um, which is kind of it's a weird situation. So you you almost have to choose whether you want to come off strong or likable instead of being able to do both, which um, is seemingly uh, more which people tend to give more of the benefit of the male uh, to do that. So, Dr. Rosalind Barnett, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Thank you again for being with us. Um, You you wrote uh, the two articles that we're referring to in Psychology Today, you and your writing partner, uh, Carol Rivers. Uh, The the other one that I I really wanted to talk about, too, was, was because this made the news. I mean, I guess all of a sudden when you have... Somebody like veteran Washington journalist Bob Woodward complaining about Hillary's shouting too much. Uh, We also have a bias about speaking styles between men and women. Right. And and how does that look? What what does the research say about when we're listening to a female versus a male speaking? Well, a couple of things. For one thing, uh, uh, when men take – when you speak a lot, you take up time, you know. Yeah. And when men take up a lot of time in a debate or whatever, they're seen as competent and powerful and perfectly confident with their power. Well, for women, women who talk a lot, they're seen as gabby, off topic, huh. uh, on and on, in fact, less competent. So, you know, when politicians, and part of what, not part, a big part of what they do is talk. Right. They talk a lot, you know, and that's their, the name of the game. And you know, Bill Clinton was famous for running over the time allocated. And so are some of the, can- the male candidates, yeah. actually. The, you know, the buzzer goes off in these debates, and they ignore it entirely. They just keep going and going until the moderator, you know, you can't just stare at saying, stop, stop, stop. Um, and that doesn't affect, in fact, sometimes it increases their likability or their, their powerful ratings, not for women. See, that, that, that's what everybody keeps saying is that Hillary's no Bill. And I guess we, we always – I guess I always thought that that – well, yeah, I mean Bill was president and he just has charisma or whatever. But really what they're also saying is Hillary's not a man. Right. I mean okay. if, if it's just – away with this stuff and women can't. Yeah. Women are supposed to be seen and not heard. They're supposed to you know, conform to the stereotype, uh, to wait to be asked, to take care of others, to defer. They're not supposed to you know, uh, usurp you know, and sort of – Take over, take charge. Yeah. Have you ever? And, you know, oh, go ahead. So, you know, this whole notion that women are gabby, over talkative, that plays in here too. So, when men, when say Bill, not just Bill Clinton, but I mean, a lot of the candidates that are uh, in the debates now, when they talk a lot, no one can see that to be a negative. Right. It, it affects negatively on their competence. But for women, that's how it works. In fact, in your article, you, you say that when um, you, you quote a, a Fox commentator, Mark Rudolph, said, when Barack Obama speaks, men hear, take off for the future kind of idea. And when Hillary mm-hmm. Clinton speaks, men hear, take out the garbage. Um, yeah, no joke. It's, it's nagging. It's, not, it's very much nagging. But see, that's I a mean, term that we would never use about a man. Oh, right. man, he sounds like right. a nag. Right. <laughs> and the other thing about it is, when people uh, hear these these speeches differences, they consider women who would talk a lot to be unsuitable for leadership. Hmm. That's right. Empirically, that's what they say. so. You know, who wants someone who's who's a, a gabby, you know, unfocused, emotional person? <laughs> that's that's the burden that women have. Well, it is. Except women. that you just described the leader of the GOP race. Yeah. Well. A blowhard. I mean, that's see. That, so they call the man a blowhard, and, and they call the woman a witch or a, a witch. she cackles. 
she's been very much criticized for her what they call her cackle. Yeah. And she laughs. She sounds like she's, and who cackles but a witch? So you know all the, the images surround various speech styles for women are very negative compared to those that surround men's speaking styles. So where men are seen as powerful and forceful, women are seen as gabby and and shrill and unsuitable for and less confident and unsuitable for leadership. It, it, and, and again, because I can just I can imagine people listening are thinking, oh, come on, don't make this a male female thing. It's Hillary Clinton. She's a blank, blank, blank. But again, highly credible candidate, highly, you know, a, sec, a secretary of state. She has the experience, two time senator. And yet um, what I worry about is there's some reason we're not getting more and more and more females stepping up. I guess we are, but but relatively speaking, our numbers aren't great, and maybe part of it is that there's this inherent bias. That's part of it, and people you know, take a look around uh, the kind of uh, exposure you get, not very flattering. Yeah, people yeah. Wouldn't want to do that. Uh, uh, so I think that's an issue. By the way, the responding to what you said a little while ago, it's, I mean, people say, "Oh, it's just Hillary." Actually, there's a ton of empirical research with you know just male female subjects. Hmm. That, that these generalizations we talked about. They're everywhere. Yeah. They're just not about Hillary Clinton. That she's, it's just, Hillary is an example of what's a general phenomenon, and that's been noted and, and confirmed over and over again. Mm-hmm. Men and women are judged very, very differently on their speech styles, and those the distinctions they, they people make about them have important implications for their how they're viewed as uh, viewed in terms of leadership ability. Well, I um, saw it with Carly Fiorina, too. I thought when I would listen to her, I thought she was brilliant in how she'd handle ideas and thoughts and how she'd debate and take people on. I thought it was brilliant and one of the yeah. best debaters I think the GOP had and yet gone and destroyed. <laughs> and I mean, some of that might be, you know, political positioning may have hurt her as well, but it's I, I think I think you're bringing up just an essential point for all of us that if we want equality and then I don't know if you've read the studies out of um, out of BYU and University of Texas about the power women have in changing culture. Um, so when when women have the opportunity to be educated, when they have the opportunity to lead, to share their voice, to take care of their own health, um, the entire culture, the entire country is elevated by. Oh. Oh, yes, the health of women, yes, and and yes. I love that. And it seems like that's why we need to hear more of the voice of of women and not judge it immediately. Yeah, well, we have a long way to go on that front. Yeah, I mean, we're obviously making progress. It's not it's not a bad news story. You know, we're right. obviously making progress, but uh, the I think this work suggests how far we have yet to go. Well, yeah, and it seems like if this actually did come down to a maybe a Donald who who has the ability to just say whatever he apparently wants to without too much recourse. Um, and a Hillary Clinton, I, this could actually go crazy, I think, because the things that will be said, I, I can't even fathom. Well, we may have to, we may find out in the next little, very little while. Yeah, yeah. What What do you suggest, uh, Dr. Barnett, that we do in the future going forward? What do I do with one daughter and five boys to teach them how to maybe tune in to the female voice better? Well, that's a, good, that's a very good question. Uh, one is for you to be, let's see, two, two points. One is it has to do with you. So uh, since you're, you're, you're the person we're talking about here, that when you hear any comments, 
you stop the conversation. Say, hey, hang on, hang on a second. What is it you just said? And uh, wh- why are you saying that? Or where does that come from? Or where have you read that? Just to take it, to, to take it very seriously and think about it. Yeah. Uh, just not let it go by because too much stuff goes by. So that's what you can do for your children. Um, and then you can look at your own behavior. Like it or not, we're all sexist. Yeah. No, I agree. You know, I mean, I, this Without even knowing work, it, right? I mean, we, we have a Without bias. You know, this is my you know, it's my life work, and yet I, I catch myself. Hmm. And we have to stop and say, wait, what did I just say? So, you know, what am I doing? You know, we, we were all part of our, this culture, as I said before. <clears throat> and some of it is in the air. We just we hear on the news, hear all the commentators' comments. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's hard to not absorb that somewhat. But we don't want to be doing that. Right. Because, oh, my gosh, what am I doing? I, I catch myself. Doing that, I think it's really, really important. Well, and you're and you're an expert in the subject, and yet, mm-hmm. but, but I think that's so honest. I think I think sometimes too, even when we hear that it's a feminist argument, most people don't even know what that means. Do you know what I mean? There's like an inherent bias about that. If you're a white male, that right. that that's just wrong. Except I think the data the data is pretty clear. If all of a sudden we judge a woman that speaks the same amount of time as a man, um, if we judge her as being more just, you know, yappity Gabby instead of just a profound thinking and communicative senator or whatever, that's a problem. Yeah, it is a problem. It's a problem for the woman, of course. It's a problem for our culture. Sure. Because we make the road – women have a harder road to hoe anyway because where they're starting from. But it makes it even that much harder. Just overcome all this, this built-in, you know, um, negativity. Yeah, no, I agree. You you need to keep writing, uh, and, and well, on, I mean, I know you're writing your books, yeah. but on yeah. Psychology Today is how we found you. It's almost in pop culture we found you, and we we need yeah. to hear more of this. So thank you so well, we much. Are, we we now have a blog, Carol and I, and we intend to continue. Uh, putting stuff up there and Great. hope we have a good readership like, like you. Yeah, we. you know what? We'll keep watching for you, and we'll have you back on as soon as your next blog comes up. Thank you so much, okay, Dr. Ro- Rosalind Barnett. Appreciate you. Great. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Great uh, insight. Folks, again, it don't. it's too easy to just try to eliminate ideas from our mind. Let the idea in a little longer than we might normally let these things in. Um, if we're losing 50% of the voice in our in our world of females simply because we discount it, we're going to pay for that. We're going to pay for that. And uh, who's going to pay will be, you know, your community, your, your citizenry, your children, our future. We are missing important information. Whatever your political persuasion, uh, we're probably not hearing enough from the, the women in our lives and in our cities and communities. We'll take a break, folks. Um, Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, when you think about it, um, there's always an inherent bias. There's a cultural bias. And I think all Dr. Barnett was bringing up is there appears to be, based on the research from a variety of highly accredited universities like Yale um, and, and NYU and others, there's 
there is a bias. And some of it just simply might be, you know, cultural. Maybe it goes back to uh, kind of the Judeo-Christian, you know, ethic and influence of different roles for men, different roles for women. But in the end, it doesn't hurt us to just question our own thinking, right, to self-reflect and notice if that bias is is taking over us. There's something super powerful, I would say, to be, for example, um, a, a conservative that can still appreciate Hillary Clinton, her strengths, um, her abilities, her skill set, and appreciate that she's a female and appreciate that that's a powerful uh, opportunity. And you still don't have to vote for her. And you don't have to hate her. What we tend to do is we polarize every issue in our world, in our culture, and it's easy to do that, I guess, by gender, by race. I mean, every single issue we have out there can be polarized by your bias. And simultaneously, we can see that not every issue is black-white. Not every issue is male-female. Not every issue is educated-uneducated. Not every issue is rich-poor. There's there's kind of a, a, a mix, a, a cornucopia if you would. So as a human being, we have the power to open up our minds and to open up our minds for many. That's scary because we're afraid we might be influenced. We seem to get our confidence from our position, not our skill set, right? We get our, we get our confidence from the fact that I'm pro-choice or pro-life. We get our confidence from the fact that I'm Christian or Muslim. We get our confidence from All of these different things, which should not probably be the source of our confidence. Your confidence should be probably built around principles, you know, uh, caring for others, serving others, understanding others, your ability to understand somebody. And you can understand somebody and not agree with them. Some of us believe that if I understand what you're saying, you might get the idea that I agree with you, so I don't even want to go there. I'm just going to blow your idea up immediately. But what is crazy is we have um, we have Republicans that are liking Bernie Sanders, a socialist, Democratic socialist, and we have Democrats that are liking Donald Trump. People are crossing everywhere because probably more because of the spirit of and the principles that these people are suggesting, not necessarily the the actual position itself. But Donald's on to something when he says, you know what? Government's out of control, needs to be reined in. Uh, Bernie Sanders is on to something when he says, you know what? It's not fair that whatever percent, one percent of the pop of the population owns more money than 50 percent. It's not fair that people can't go to school because they can't afford it. Now, whether you like the policy or not, think about the idea. Do you do you agree that it should there should be some balance, not even in just income, but in opportunity? You can understand Bernie Sanders and not vote for him. You can understand the pain and the angst about uh, the followers that are loving Donald Trump. You can understand and not go with Trump. And until we all start understanding some of this, how would we ever believe we're going to fix it? 
complicated, isn't it? And yet that is that's the goal. That's the that's the reality. I think that's really the test. I even think that's why you're on this earth. So you can deal with all of these difficult ideas and see if you can still use your good spirit and your goodness to come out and and come out healthy instead of just jumping on the bandwagon. Anyway, that's the first hour of the show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We can't do it without you. Go check us out on our BYU Radio app. Just look up BYU Radio or go on iTunes or TuneIn. You can download that podcast, forward it to all your friends. We'll take a break, folks. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I probably, I just feel like I need to give you some advice. It's going to be good advice, of course. So you ever had somebody say, you know, what do you recommend at the restaurant? What do you recommend here? We were talking earlier about how Donald Trump uh, basically ordered for Chris Christie at a dinner. Basically ordered a mistake. You got to try some of these Trump steaks. And so we, I was looking and found this interesting article about uh, from businessinsider.com about just certain things that you, you shouldn't eat ever. And it comes from a, um, a person that spent over 20 years working in food poisoning lawsuits. Bill Marler put together this article, and he has six foods that he simply will not eat anymore. And um, none of them necessarily are like from Chipotle because they keep getting in trouble. Um, check out this list, though. Raw oysters. Just he's not going to do the raw oyster thing. Ben, have you ever had a raw oyster? Oh, he's having one right now. Hmm. It sounds good, Ben. Yeah, they're not bad. You really... Okay, that's not how you eat an oyster. You just kind of more, with the oyster, you just kind of swallow it. You slurp it like that. Yeah. You're chewing it. If you chew it, you're just going to end up chewing it all day. Yeah. Don't eat raw oysters. Marler says that he has seen more foodborne illnesses linked to shellfish in the past five years than in the two preceding decades. And the reason? The culprit? Warming waters. As the global waters are heating up, it's producing microbial growth, which ends up in the raw oyster that uh, you happen to be slurping down. Uh, The second thing he suggests you don't eat, don't eat pre-cut or pre-washed fruits and vegetables. Anything that's pre-washed, pre-cut, careful. You got you got to anything that's been processed, pre-cut, pre-washed, take them out, wash them, do it again. Don't eat raw sprouts, which I couldn't agree more. Why, why is anybody eating sprouts anyway? Actually, I like sprouts, but sprouts, uh, you know, they come with more than thirty bacterial outbreaks primarily salmonella and E. coli in the past two decades. Sprouts, you know, they've got some problems. Watch out for rare meat, obviously. This seems like a no-brainer. You know, but if it bleeds, it leads to so the hospital. so good, though. Do you like raw meat? Not raw meat, but rare. 
Like rare, rare? Pretty rare. Yeah. Do you know what we call that in my neck of the woods? What? You're a carnivore. I'll accept that. <laughs> Watch out. You got you got to get the heat up, 160 degrees to kill the bacteria, or you're going to get E. coli or salmonella. Uncooked eggs, I wouldn't, you know, don't eat them. Don't do the Rocky Balboa thing. Put it in your smoothie. Buh. Buh. It's a no-brainer. It'll kill you, folks. Raw eggs, watch out. Watch out. And watch out for today's trend. There's a big trend about unpasteurized milk and juices. Because many are arguing that pasteurization depletes nutritional value. Yeah. Okay. It also saves your life. It it makes it so your insides don't try to come out on the outside. It keeps your inners on the inners. It's just better for you. There's a reason Louis Pasteur came to this world. One way, one reason is to make sure that you keep your drink down. So don't drink something that isn't pasteurized, for heaven's sakes. We're talking about restaurants, right? If you want to drink raw milk, you know, right out of the cow, at home, you need a life, not to be rude. You need to do something. Hey, here's another one. Don't eat, don't eat rare pearls. Listen to this story. Out of Issaquah, Washington. I used to live there, you know. Did you? Yeah. They have a really... Did you ever go to this Italian restaurant? No, It's I, called Montalcino Ristorante Italiano. No, I, I've never been there. I don't know if that's how you say it, but yeah. that's... It, it sounded right. It sounded like it? a good pronunciation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A woman bit down on a rare pearl while eating a meal of clams the other day at a restaurant. She's eating like a clam sauce, probably, some clam and linguine meal. Mmm. Sounds good. At an Italian restaurant... Lindsay has. Did you know Lindsay? Lindsay and Chris, they live up in Issaquah? No. No. Yeah, they live there. I thought you'd know just because you live there. It's a big town. Uh, They were eating at Montalcino Ristorante Italiano, and recently when she bit into something hard into her entree, Haz says that she wasn't sure what it was, uh, pulled it out, put it in her pocket, and went home to do some research. She took it to a gemologist who determined... It was a quahog purple pearl worth about 600 bones. Pretty lucky lady. I mean, sure, it's a molar. Sure, she shattered a molar. But she done found herself a pearl. That's pretty neat. Normally, you'd say, waiter, something crunchy just broke my tooth. But this young lady, smart, smart, she just took it home. She says, and the owner of the Ristorante Montalcino Ristorante, Cindy Nardone, says she's so happy for Haz. That's great. She should have kept the pearl and then asked for a refund on her meal. Not a bad idea. Just trying to help. Is that how we do it in Issaquah? Yeah. Milk all the money you can. (laughs) She may make it into a necklace, by the way. That is cool. That is great. Something you can't always do when you find something strange in your meal. You know, hey, I found some hair. It's just weird to put hair on a necklace. Make make it into a necklace. No, thanks. I'm going to be in the restroom for a minute. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. When you talk about morality, the reason we do what we do and why we do it, 
It's And we don't consciously sit there and say, I will now go try to look better by being morally superior to everybody. But we all know somebody that has to tell us when we're doing something wrong. Or I had friends growing up in high school that if I, I would make a joke that they would laugh at, but then they'd be like, oh, Matt, shouldn't say that. And it it was hilarious. That's why they were laughing. And they're like, man, what's wrong with me? Why? Why do I say that? Because I must be such a misfit. Anyway, morality. And one of the things I talk a lot about when I work with my clients is we, we, there's a thing called logical force. Okay, so logical force is when we make a decision based on logic, not morality. For example, um, if you have a friend that called you a name or embarrassed you at, a, at an event, it would be logical that you don't talk to her, I guess, for a week. Ignore her. Ben does this all the time with the producers around him. It's very effective. Well, okay. And um, we're talking against it now, so you wouldn't want to probably argue that it's effective. I just need to put that in. Okay. Sorry. So, so you're justified, right? Because you're doing something that is right. If you went and interviewed your friends, nine out of your ten friends, if you had ten friends, Ben, nine out of ten of them would say, yeah, I'd be mad too, and I would ignore Stacy. I'd ignore her. Because that was totally rude. The problem is, even if it's even if it's logical for you to be mad, even if it's uh, and you can see this in our political world, even if it makes good political sense for you to put someone down, for you to destroy someone's career or you know credibility, it, just because it is logical and it it logically can be justified, it doesn't make it moral, right? Your morals, your moral value system and your logic system don't all they don't go together because many times the most moral thing you can do when you see something that's been done wrong, like let's go to the story of the guy that killed the lion. Um, I guess you could gang up and jump in and send it to everyone you know and show how moral you are, or you could just shut your flapper and Go make a donation to preserving animals, right? But no one would know about that. So what's the point? What's the point? Why would I do something that nobody knows about? I guess because it's moral. So when I think of a moral person, I think of a Gandhi, uh, a Buddha, Mother Teresa. These people didn't promote their actions. They just acted. I think you're being naive, Matt. <laughs> Is that – are you trying to show – are you trying to get me mad so I would – No, I'm trying to be logical. Your larynx. Um, Got to look after yourself in this world. See, again, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Trump. Um, that's a perfect example. That's a perfect example. All of a sudden, it's logical to defend yourself. You feel like you have to defend yourself. Even the guy that was going to rush the stage, he was making a good point. Donald Trump's a bully, so all I wanted to do is just take the – I just wanted to take his – his speaker away, his pulpit away. I wanted to get rid of his stand. I didn't want to let him have his voice anymore. Logical. Logical. Not so logical when you think of the fact that there was tens of thousands of people there that would have stopped him. Uh, Twelve or so, he said, you know, Secret Service people that could have killed him or killed someone else trying to stop him. Not super logical. 
but he feels like he has moral authority to do that. I guess one of the problems we run into in our society is we think we have a right, and that right means we have no responsibility. We have a right to say what we need to say, to use our voice, to be mad and to take a stand and even charge the stage. We have a right to do this. But there's also a responsibility. Do you know how bad that could have gone? Secret service that have weapons. This guy could have either been killed or other people harmed or injured or Donald could have had a heart attack. Things could have happened. There's a responsibility that comes along with all of this. So just because you have a moral right or a right, logical right, it doesn't mean it's going to be moral and healthy for you. And remember, check your own gut. If Why do you need to post certain things? Look at what you're posting. If you're somebody that is constantly posting political things or constantly having to beat up the latest issue morally, um, why are we doing that? Ask yourself, what, does, what do I gain by being this type of person? In the end, you're probably not actually improving your moral system. In the end, your moral system is more between you, your God, you and your people around you, you and the followers that respect you and trust you. That's where your moral system creates strength, not in the masses necessarily. Unless you're somebody that is always in the masses uh, with people following you, I'd keep your moral compass fine-tuned to the people around you. Anyway, uh, closest to you, by the way. We'll take a break. More of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, after about 20 or so years of schooling, many adults strike out into the business world, but does their learning really ever stop? There are new positions, promotions, trainings to accomplish in the workplace that require continual learning, but how proficient are we at asking the right questions and uh, and, and continuing our learning after we've exited the world of academia Dr. Allison J. Head directs Project Information Literacy, or PIL, P-I-L. PIL recently looked at how today's graduates continue to learn once they've completed college. She joins us now live from California to talk about uh, the research and what they found in the research. Dr. Allison J. Head, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you for having me. I'm it's uh, it's my pleasure to be here. This is, I think, a fascinating uh, work that you're doing on project. Um, uh, what's it called? Project, uh, project information infor- literacy. Information literacy pill. It's a pill. It's is it a hard pill to swallow? But, but you know, at Harvard they do call it pill. I so bet. Maybe I'm a pill to Harvard <laughs> College. Well, Allison, we appreciate it. exactly because I think your findings are interesting. Let's let's talk about this. What when when you put together uh, the project, what were you looking for? What are you trying to do, and, and what information have you found by by studying the these graduates? Well, this is uh, the eighth study that we've produced. We've wow. been studying college uh, students since two thousand nine and have released a whole range of studies about how college students find and use information in the digital age for course research and also in their everyday life while they're in college. Mm. 
But math, the million-dollar question is, what happens once they graduate? Right. What skills stick? Uh, what skills do they take with them and adapt and adopt in their everyday lives, as well as the workplace? And a kind of a unique question, not online communities, but the local communities where they live. Huh. And that's what we wanted to look at. There really are very few research projects that have studied students after they finish college. And so with information sciences, scientists at the University of Washington's information school, we really wanted to more deeply understand what their information needs were as well as the sources that they used. Because th this really, the information age is a relatively new thing. Um, and and these, these graduates are, they're facing, I guess, information and, and changing information, altering information at a pace that few of us had, you know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago. I think you're exactly right. And what's unique here and what we found in the study is what we call the shelf life of the skills that they leave college with. Huh. And it doesn't matter whether they're in sciences or doing something in statistics or doing social science research or even in areas like education and working with children. There's so much change occurring at this point that it's really hard for recent grads to keep up with the learning that they need to do to be current in the workplace as well as be successful and hold on to their jobs. E e A lot of fear about becoming outdated. Yeah, well, which is so strange because they have – more resources than ever, online resources, Google, TED Talks, YouTube. They have, they have resources to continue learning. Is it just they don't have the time? You know, that turned out to be the – you're exactly right. That turned out to be the biggest challenge that they had when we asked that question. We surveyed 1,651 grads from the years 2007 to 2012 from 10 – universities and colleges across the U.S. And the number one reason, as you have suggested, is they don't have time, but it's also um, they really can't find affordable sources. Huh. They're lacking the kind of guidance and expertise that was so easy to get in college through whether that was through an incredible campus library and access to databases from providers like JSTOR and ProQuest, or even to be able to sit through a class with a professor that has outlined a whole field like something like astronomy. Hmm. How do you even begin to do that when you're out on your own? Right, especially at, that, at a higher level. Well, and, and also, you know, it's a double-edged sword. Um, when we did our first study, librarians reacted to it and said, how could research be so difficult now? And it's really the abundance of information. Mm. When, we, when I went to college, there was really a scarcity of information. You, you became an expert. You looked for every bit of information that you could get. You scanned the library shelves, and you became an expert, especially to get a, a PhD. Right. Uh, or, or even a master's or even a senior thesis. But now that's an impossibility to stay on top of information and to really know a field inside and out. So that's a particular problem, as well as the change in, in different computer programs, something we really don't think about, but occurred on this project as well. I've always used SPSS as a stat package. Right. 
Um, oh, I hated that also, thing, not to be mean. <laughs> But I hated that. Now Now everybody really hates it. (laughs) But, you know, that was the standard. And on this project, uh, we found that the statistician I worked with used R. And sure enough, in our interviews, there was a a couple of statisticians that worked on different research projects for marketing, but also one in education that said, I don't know R. You know, I learned Mm. SAS. I learned SPSS. Um, I'm I'm behind the curve, wow. and I've only been out of college three years. So the shelf life for skills, according to an article in Atlantic, is about five years. So the shelf life is five years. That's yeah, five years for the skills that you're learning is what a recent article on lifelong learning by John Seeley Brown and others uh, quoted as finding. So really, so I mean, that's really shocking, no matter what field you're in. So that's one particular problem. It's not, you know, it's auditors keeping up with financial programs and approaches. It's uh, people that go into education that are educators and work with children. There's so much being discovered about different curriculum as well as the way the brain works hmm. and teaching methodologies as well as keeping up with core standards and the controversy over that. Uh, you know, so across a number of different fields, we found that grads uh, were behind the curve very quickly and held responsible in their own time for staying current. Is it? And, th- and that really blindsides grads. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, think of that. Think of the money, the time, the energy you spent, and then you ride that wave, go get your first job. You're just trying to stay, you know, alert in your 65, 70 hours a week job um, just to get ahead. And five years later, you've been passed. Well, and you're spending your evenings or your time off. And a number of these people had uh, families or were starting families, right. you know, um, trying to sit through Code Academy or Code School or a MOOC which we found really was too much of a commitment and something that was the kind of learning, kind of a non-formal learning, that was not very similar to the classroom, Hmm. where they missed their peers and missed that responsibility of having to go to a classroom, say, on a college campus or such. And the community almost of that. Was it the community and the interaction? You're exactly right, that you could turn to your peers and – um, you knew how other people had done on tests and uh, how the learning was happening. And, and if you wanted to review a concept, you could bring that up into cla- in class. And there was discussion about it, which is different. I mean, there are, that is available in online settings, but that doesn't seem to be something that works as well. Explain what a MOOC is. Some people may not know what a MOOC is. Well, a MOOC is it's something relatively new. And it's for multiple users, sometimes thousands of users, to sign up for an online course. And it's immersive. Uh, Harvard has MOOCs that they've made public. For instance, they have Terry Fisher from Harvard Law School teaching a course, a beginning course about copyright, which is pretty interesting. It's filmed. Uh, His slides are there, his PowerPoint slides, and he goes through a lot of engaging examples. And by the end, you may get a certificate or you may get a badge. There's also Coursera is probably the most widely used MOOC that's out there. However, what's interesting is we found YouTube Mm -hmm. was much more used in the sample, 79%, uh, 
for learning in short little spurts and how-to videos, which I think we all use, than MOOCs. MOOCs, Coursera, for instance, was only used by 14% of the sample. Are they they the same level of depth? I mean, I assume a MOOC would be much more, uh, it'd be deeper, it'd probably be more like being at a university. It's, you know, it's a course. It's an online course that's sequential. Um, you know, this week, for instance, we found on another topic, we found this is I think this is really fascinating. In the past, everyday life research interests have been around hobbies. They always have. Right. We did research a few years ago and found the same. The original research done in Finland found hobbies were huge. We found this as well. However, what's interesting is the hobbies have shifted. There, a great number of the grads had hobbies that were around coding. Oh, really? Python, learning Java, wanting to learn web design, learning that in their personal life, but also that spilled over to the workplace life. Yeah, almost to so stay. You can see where the workplace, um, your hobbies blend. Yeah, it used to be your hobby, I guess, could be something like like diametrically opposed to your work, or like Gardening. maybe golfing, and gardening. Yeah, gardening. You know, to take you out of yourself, mm-hmm. making wine. You know, something so different than what you did every day in the workplace. Wow. Maybe you had a buddy at work that did the same hobby, but what we found is there really is a blending between workplace and also personal life, which is pretty interesting stuff when you think about it, about the implications of yeah. that. Well, maybe your work uh, is now becoming who you are. Your, it's your identity. It's your life. Well, you, it, when you – college is very different, and there is such an emphasis for a variety of reasons, tuition being probably one of the primary ones, and the need to get through in four years and be employable. Mm-hmm. And that emphasis on employability and uh, often at the expense of general in education courses that would look at problem solving or inquiry um, may have some really serious consequences when it comes to lifelong learning and this need for continued learning. I, I think one of the most shocking findings in the study is that 63%, almost two-thirds of the sample, said that they uh, were really dismayed that they had to continue learning once they got out of college. Wow. They were surprised. <laughs> That's amazing, isn't it? I it mean... is amazing. And, you know, and they really um, were frustrated by that, about that need. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and to, we did a number of follow-up interviews. We did 63 follow-up interviews, which really adds a lot of qualitative texture to this. But to their credit, if you get out and then you find out the skills like the SPSS example mm-hmm. um, just aren't relevant. You know, right. the real takeaway quote from a focus group we did before this study was the, was the grad that said, nobody gives you the reading list in life. Wow. Oh, wow. And, and it's true. You're, right. You know, life is an outline for you. There are no you know, there are tests, your income tax and such. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, and, and whether you get your performance evaluation. But um, yeah. the feedback that you get in the workplace is very different than in a classroom. Yeah, also, you don't get a you know, syllabus, right, when you graduate. Here's now your syllabus for life. Good yeah, luck. you don't get a syllabus for life. And, in fact, that was something 
that was one of the biggest challenges was the lack of access to professors as well as to syllabi. Mm. Um, and, you know, as one grad that we interviewed said, you know, it used to be if I wanted to become an expert in something, I just took an elective. <laughs> and, um, you know, I wanted to know about Shakespeare. I would take an elective. And then all of a sudden I would be knowledgeable in you know, 16 weeks, 10 weeks, depending on where they were. Oh, wow. So interesting. You know, it's really hard to, expertise is a difficult thing to master in the digital age. And you would think it would be easy, but David Weinberger's written a book, colleague of mine at Harvard, um, Too Big to Know. (laughs) <laughs> and it, 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 it truth has it's really just too shifted. big. It is. And we found a number of the grads kept their textbooks. Yeah. So they could go back and really review seminal concepts in their jobs that they needed to be responsible for, whether that was in science, engineering, or business. Oh, man. Allison, let's take a break um, and okay. continue this discussion. Interesting. Too big to know, folks. Um, your shelf life of uh, of your learning, graduating from college, about five years. So you're learning to learn and, and uh, you know, aggressively embracing uh, kind of a learning paradigm, maybe a learning paradigm of life. Um, it's essential. We'll take a break, come back, and continue this discussion with Dr. Allison J. Head. She is a principal research scientist in the Information School and a faculty associate at Harvard University's Berkman Center for Internet and Society. We'll take a break, folks. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, see the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Ah, so much to learn and so little time to learn it. On the phone with us is Dr. Allison J. Head, and she is um, the director of Project Information Literacy, PIL, or, uh, and recently um, uh, they've done a study. Um, the study, she, she is the head of um, the principal research scientist in the information school and a faculty associate at Harvard University's Berkman Center for Internet and Society. And in their study, this is the eighth study that they've done, um, basically evaluating college graduates to see you know, how they're doing as they're coming out and preparing to take on the world. This uh, study is titled Staying Smart, How Today's Graduates Continue to Learn Once They Complete College. And some of the information she's giving us is the shelf life of their knowledge is about five years. Um, they're they're having a hard time accessing uh, more information that's affordable, and they miss uh, university work and kind of the community of of learning. Um, they also were quite shocked that learning actually needed to continue at the level it does. Uh, Doctor Allison Head, am I getting it right so far? You're doing a good job. That's a lot of info you've come okay. up with. You want it, you want the million dollar question? Yes. I don't okay. you know what's funny, Allison? I don't even know what the million dollar question is. Oh, yes you do. Okay, we'll hear. It. Let's see. Every everybody that sends somebody to college or that goes through college or teaches oh. 
yeah. in a college or university today is asking this question. And in fact, the American Association of College and University Universities asked this question in a survey. They went to employers and said, what do you want most from today's grads? Hmm. And employers said, more than major, the ability to have critical thinking skills. Ah, there you go. To think critically. I don't care about major. This, of course, goes against what Pew's found, what the U.S. Census has found. It's always been major, and this emphasis on STEM, science and technology and engineering right. and math, that that was the pathway to a good job. But these findings are interesting and kind of shake things up. So we were intrigued by those findings from AACUP and AACU and thought, well, let's, this is good, but let's ask our sample of grads what they think themselves they took from college as far as critical thinking skills that helped them with learning once they graduated. Yeah, what did you find out? Okay. What we found out, here's the good news. They got an A on the report card for really information-seeking proficiencies, the ability to find information, which is really great. Yeah. They were particularly strong in evaluating information, the credibility and the relevance, as well as the currency. Yeah. How come? Well, it's probably one of the most critically important skills that's being taught from K through 20 now. Okay. So they get an early dose, and they continue to ramp up those evaluation skills as they go from high school, for instance, to college. Give you a quick example. In high school, you might be asked, well, is this a credible author? What can we find out about him? In college, it might be ramped up, the evaluation to, is this a credible author what What is his background or her background? Um, what credentials do they bring to the process? And who else argues with them hmm. in this discussion of their point of view? Yeah, is it so two-sided the art? Yeah. point of view? Mm-hmm. And is one introducing bias? So, you, so evaluation Great. is something that is developed really well in education in a lot of different educational settings. So this is an A on the report card. As well as presenting information, there are a number of different tools, of course, to do this. The obvious one is PowerPoint. So the tools themselves have lent themselves to more presentation as well as making short videos. Um, which is often fun for students, right? So, well, and, and important is, to business, right? I mean, so these are well, these are all huge, huge incredibly business, good traits or abilities. Business grads always score really high on that particular skill as a takeaway, but so do other majors as well. Increasingly, with every year that we look at that, but the one and then the last critical thinking skill is even better news, which is a number of the grads. These are all about three quarters of the sample agreed you know what, I, I really know how I like to learn. Okay, they know their style, okay. their method, yeah. Yeah, metacognition, really. Um, and the metacognitive abilities, for instance, when we've been out in the field, I'm always fascinated when a student interviewee will say, well, you have to understand, I'm a visual learner. Right. I don't do well with text. And so they have an idea of what their learning styles are. 
Those are all great. This things. is where they're getting A's. Where, where are they? Where, getting A's. where are okay, they struggling? The, yeah. You're ready for the C minus? Yep. Okay, here it is. And it's a little bit scary. The last one is their ability to keep asking questions and to frame questions of their own and continue asking till they get an answer. Mm. So if you really think about the state of education in a number of institutions and in a number of different curricular areas, we found this, for instance, in engineering with our interviewees, that in engineering, as an example, you're so often taught the solution. Yeah. As one of the grads we interviewed said from a big public institution, you have to understand uh, the solution, there is one, and it's either in the textbook or <laughs> the faculty members define I, it. The truth is and there. You get out in the real world and there's no textbook. Nope. That's right. <laughs> there's no back of the textbook with the answer and the explanation. And, and some people assume you have the answer, right? You're the expert. You just got out of Harvard. You should know. Well, exactly. Uh, you know, it's really that ability to ask different questions so that you continue learning right. in the workplace or in life. I mean, community involvement's really low on this on this survey. The response only about twenty five percent across the sample said that they sought out. Um, volunteer opportunities. And if you don't question and start developing questions of your own, then you're less likely to be involved in civic engagement, wow. um, as well as volunteering in your local community and, and taking part in that. So, so does this speak to the hierarchy? To the st- Oh, sorry. Does, does this speak to the hierarchy then, Allison, the structure of how we download information into our children and young adults? is It's kind of a top-down, knower and the people that don't know? Well, I think there are a lot of different... uh, I've talked to a lot of different people about this finding uh, and appeared at at Harvard Graduate School of Education that's really fascinated with this because how are we teaching today's teachers? Mm. And really, Dan Rothstein, we did an interview with him that's up on uh, projectinfolit.org, one of our smart talk interviews, and he runs the Wright Institute organization, the Right Question Institute. Hmm. And the Right Question Institute, um, its mission is to teach question asking. And in his argument, and, and I totally agree, it's never the first question. It's getting somebody to be comfortable asking the second and third and fourth. Yeah. And that's really where the learning takes place. So in a lot of ways, what edu- people in education will tell you is, Teachers really aren't taught to encourage question asking from students and how that process occurs. I, I would say, you know, after teaching for 25 years in a college setting, um, we have a number of strategic learners. They know how to get into classes. They know how to memorize the information, take tests, and get out. And they get A's. Right. And they're really not asking questions. Um, Our interviewees talked about other reasons that, I don't know if intimidate, um, Hmm. certainly in some cases, but really lessen the ability to ask questions, especially in big public institutions. And that's the student-to-professor ratio. 
of classes. Yeah, if you, yeah, two hundred people in a room or whatever. That's right. you may not dare say anything. You know, and the most damning quote in our entire study is from a student from a big public institution that said, you have to understand, my university was in the business of churning out students. Right. Ooh. And they had a model, and they could get you through in four years, and you just didn't have time to ask questions. Oh, that's so sad. So they're good at responding right. to other people's questions. Yeah. But they're not good at asking no. their own. Well, so it's, so it's like they don't own their learning. They don't own their... They don't own their learning. Yeah. They own their, you know, the curriculum that's served up. So in the workplace, uh, for instance, we talked to somebody um, that we interviewed in the follow-up interviews, that what you see happening in some work settings is a number of seminars on interpersonal communication and question asking, because they see it as a lacking skill and... Someone from a Fortune 500 uh, company that we interviewed said, oh, at my company, they teach you the rule here, which is ask why, why, and why. Hmm. And we all accept that here for new employees when they're coming in. So when somebody shows you a process, ask why. Great. And they'll know you're going to ask that because they know you're yeah. new. So now it's kind of cultural. It's it's acceptable. Allison, as we we've got about two minutes. Um, So what should we as a dad with a college student Mm -hmm. uh, and another one on the way to college? What should I do? What can I do as a parent to and just anybody out there to make sure we're 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 teaching our children to own their learning, to know that they got to keep learning, to ask questions? Well, I think, you know, what's interesting is and it's our first recommendation. We make 10 at the end of the study. Uh, which is open access and on the site. Um, I I think one of the more interesting little pieces that came through is parents in particular saying that they really want their children to graduate with the ability to see a much bigger view of the world beyond their discipline. Yeah. And those are often carried through in gen, gen ed or general education courses, which more and more are shrinking as emphasis on courses for employability are squeezing out those kinds of classes. So I think gen ed's important. I think in a practical sense, extracurricular activities that really force uh, students while they're students to go out of their comfort zone. Somebody talked about putting on a concert and then was surprised to find he had to sign a contract. He'd never seen one. Mm. He had to arrange for disabled parking. He didn't even think of it. <laughs> it's he great. Had to copyright the music they were playing. I just wanted to sing a song. <laughs> play and perform. All that, he said, this is what my job's like now. Yeah. It's just a bunch of stuff thrown at you. So I think um, those kinds of experience help broaden students, and I think they've become very narrow through uh, through the process of education. I love it. And we can get all of this information. Is it on projectinfolit.org? It is. Okay. And right at the top, uh, it says latest research, and there you'll find the full study. And we also produced a video. We have an infographic as well with key findings. Oh. A lot of them I discussed today. Yeah. No, you know what? And it's such – it's so important. And I sit around a, a, a lot of uh, students here at BYU that work on my team um, to do the show. And I just I, – I feel for them because sometimes I, – I, now especially I feel because to think that everything they're learning has about a shelf life of five years – 
and uh, some of the shocking things they're going to have to go through when they leave. Um, well, it's scary. And it really is one of, uh, you know, our argument. We call these, this is in the series of the passage studies that we did. We also did high school to freshman year um, in these three studies that we did. And um, it's just a tremendous adjustment that we forget as employers, uh, as, Parents. as professors, yeah. that um, somebody's making and they're coming from diverse backgrounds. By the way, last thing, yeah. we use BYU students in our pilot testing of our survey. Did we skew the data? No, you were good. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, Sometimes nice. we skew the data. We have that. We always pilot test our instruments. And, that's good. <laughs> uh, somebody on the team knew a lot of BYU students. Oh, that's great. Grads, actually. Oh, and, great. Um, they had a lot of really good comments for improving the instrument. Oh, perfect. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad we're helping. Um, Dr. Allison J. Head, thank you so much for your great work and uh, look forward to having you back on the show to keep uh, learning from you. Great. Thank you, Matt. My thank you. My pleasure. You bet. Take care. Great work. Everybody, go to the website, projectinfolit.org, Project Info Lit for Project Information Literacy, projectinfolit.org, and you can learn more about uh, the studies they've been doing on you know, how to launch, how to, how to get out, and what's going to happen when uh, these kids are done with college and what they need to know. Basic, real solutions, folks, uh, to help you with your real-life issues. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. Can you imagine uh, spending, you know, four years in school, maybe getting a graduate degree, and but then going into today's day and age, today's world, and trying to be competitive when it's all going to change in five years? I have people all the time that want uh, they want my advice on what they should do in, you know, they want to be. Some of them want to be a therapist. Some of them want to have a radio show and be on the radio. Some of them want to do TV work like I do. Some of them want to be a public speaker and I can't even tell them what to do because it's like, you know, I just read, I'd read a lot. I'd, I'd study everything. I'd find what you're passionate about. I'd get as much education you can. I mean, what do you tell them? What do you tell them? But when I, now I can know, at least I should tell them, ask questions, learn, 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 make learning a part of your life, a part of what you love doing. It's an essential part of your life. Make uh, what I find is my profession is really my hobby. Um, so I'd rather go study what I do professionally because it, it's just fulfilling. Last night when I couldn't sleep, I read about today's guests. I didn't just go play a video game. Um, it's it's my hobby. It's what I it's what I enjoy doing. It's a different day and age, though, folks. And so make sure when you're talking to your kids that they're aware of. They need a broad spectrum of abilities and skills and tools. Make sure that what they're learning in school is applicable, where it's not just about your um, your degree anymore. It's not just about uh, your major. It's about critical thinking and the ability to keep asking questions, framing questions, answering questions, and having questions answered until it's problem solved. It's a different day and age, isn't it? It's not enough to just get a degree. I think that's great analysis. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. 
Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I love talking to people that are at the top of their field, right? The top of their game, like uh, Brian Tracy. I mean, some people are sitting there like, well, I don't like people that try to make it sound that simple. And, um, you know, you don't have to go chasing money. You don't have to go be in love with money. And But the reality is there are people, and if you've ever been around somebody, I just sat down with somebody yesterday that is running a huge company, multi-billion dollar company. And he, with thousands of employees and tens of thousands of employees, and it's it's interesting how organized he really is and how it all comes down to very basic principles in his mind, in his, in his head. It really is about principles. And I think that's all Brian was teaching us is there's just certain principles that are going to lead to success. You can argue against them if you want, but it's hard to argue that companies that focus on sales make more sales. I mean, if if all of a sudden the average uh, corporation is spending 25% of their workforce, 30% of their money on creating and generating cells, and uh, a little homegrown business is spending 10% on cells, wouldn't it make sense that the corporation's going to make more money? Right? That's not brain surgery. And yet, as a small business owner, it's hard to focus on sales if you don't love sales. I'd rather create content any day, but that's useless if no one's going to go sell the content. So if you want a company to succeed, you really need to do what works. How about just long-term thinking versus short-term thinking? Have you been so busy just living your life day in and day out that you didn't plan ahead for something down the road? Have you ever had a trip that you knew you were going to take in, you know, six months from now? And then you waited till three weeks before to get your passport? Oh, just long-term thinking, you know, it helps. It's not perfect, but it, it can certainly help. So anyway, it's, uh, it's just some basic information. Um, and, uh, but also, I think if you just look at, uh, like, Brian Tracy's success rate, it's pretty good. Pretty good. You, if you're selling millions and millions of books a year, you're doing, you're doing okay. Doesn't, make, doesn't mean it's all perfect and great, but he's living his principles. He is creating sales. He is an entrepreneur. He is looking long-term. If you're trying to grow a business, you probably ought to grow some of those principles as well. But there might be more uh, other things we can be doing. Let me give you a few more that that will definitely impact your ability to, to live better. We might actually need to go back into our lives and eliminate some things, 
right? Get rid of certain things. There's a Listen to this story of a 90-year-old woman um, from Michigan decided to turn her cancer diagnosis into an excuse to travel across the United States. The woman named Norma is accompanied by her son, Tim, daughter-in-law, Ramey, and their poodle, Ringo. And they are out documenting their adventures via Facebook page, Driving Miss Norma. (laughs) Norma learned of her cancer within two weeks of her husband's death and told her son prior to the diagnosis that she had no interest in treatment. Her son and his wife then explained to the doctor they would be driving her around the country in her RV and ultimately receiving his blessing. As doctors, we see what cancer treatment looks like every day, he said. ICU, nursing homes, awful side effects, and honestly, there is no guarantee she will survive the initial surgery to remove the mass. You're doing exactly what I want to do in this situation. Have a fantastic trip, the doctor said. In August, the family upgraded their motor home to a larger 36-foot model and began their trip by traveling to Mount Rushmore in South Dakota before continuing through the country, visiting other landmarks, historical sites such as Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Ramey uh, told ABC News that in addition to seeing the sites and gaining more than 100,000 likes on her Facebook page, Norma's health seems to be improving. How cool is that? She's getting better, maybe, or at least feeling better. She's receiving the benefits of being different, doing something different. Notice she set a goal. She's figured out how the goal is going to work. What a great way. If, if, you, gotta, if you got cancer and you got to deal with cancer, it sure sounds like a better way to do it. Now, um, I have put together in the past a project I call the Project of Elimination. There are certain things that keep us stuck. And um, I'm going to, as we do this little coach's corner, go through a bunch of different tools that you might want to just get rid of. Things you just need to declutter out of your head. Think of it as like a spring cleaning. You know, as as spring comes uh, and winter's done, it's time to clean out the house. Back in the day, remember, they'd bring out the rugs and they'd beat up their rugs to get all the dust out of them. It's time to spring clean. Let me give you a few things I'd suggest that you start to, to let go of. Number one, let go of the stories that don't serve you. How many times have we been telling stories that we really haven't even thought about, but we use these phrases like, I'm not very good at that. Yeah, I don't do that. I'm not a math person. We might quickly dismiss something we do by saying, ah, it's just the way I am. Yeah, I, you know, I'm not, I don't like to hold the grandbabies. I, I, I want them. I'm a, I'm a grandpa that'll play with them when they're older. Well, let go of that story and pick up your grandbaby. <laughs> Get rid of the story. You don't have to be pegged by something you thought you were 30 years ago. It's not like somebody's going to say, Grandpa, do this math. So you, you don't have to be bad at math anymore. You've got a brain. You can still add. Anyway. It's simple to just sit there and have a trite phrase that we use all of the time. But many of these phrases, they're not going to help you. They beat you up. They, 
they actually take away something. They could take away something like time with your kids or your grandkids. Yeah, I don't have time for that. Yeah, hobbies, you know, I don't golf because it's a waste of time. Now, you don't have to go golf, but that's also a story because it could be really time well spent. Exercising, hanging out with friends, opening your mind up, meditating, wrapping your golf club around a tree, stuff like that. Another thing we need to let go of is the need to keep score. Let's just get very clear, folks. Life isn't fair. So if it's not fair, then there's probably no value in keeping score. (laughs) People are going to step on you. They're going to make mistakes. Someone's going to pull in front of you, and it is going to slow you down ten hundredths of a second. Yeah, it happens. Doesn't mean you need to chase them down and pull in front of them. The reason why it's not useful to keep score is because much of life is intangible anyway. The greatest benefits in life are intangible. They're not even... You can't mark it. You can't compare it. The joy you feel being with a grandchild, the joy you feel watching your child have a home run or hit a home run in a game, man, that's incredible. And why are we keeping score? It's not fair. At some point, people are going to step on your toes. They're going to do stupid stuff. This isn't a race. This is called life. So if you feel a need to keep score constantly, then guess what? You're going to pay for it. There's going to be problems for you. Another thing we need to let go of are what I call the overs and the unders. Every one of us tends to take extremes in our lives. We either go overboard or under, right? So we play way too hard and excessive in what we do. We play to kill for keeps. We play to dominate. And some of us just don't play. Think about your life. Where are you overboard? Well, I I collect figurines. I have 12,000 of them. Okay, it's a little over. Maybe you're a little overboard on that. Uh, You don't have to be a fanatic to believe in God. You don't have to go overboard or under. Yeah, I don't even go to church. You can actually go to church and just be there. Be there your way. Yeah, but then they'll ask me to pray, and then i got to pray. Well, you could say no. Overs and unders, we all do it. And sometimes it's over, you know, we're overconfident, uh, and some of us are really underconfident. We lack the confidence we need. Are there certain things that take you to an extreme? Are you doing any activity excessively? Do you, over, do you overschedule your life? Do you overcommit to everything? Are you overly exhausted? Or do you, you know, have plenty of energy because you don't ever say yes to anything and you don't ever step out of your comfort zone? We might want to look at that and let go of it. You might want to let go of what's not working. Sometimes in life, there's just time to let go of stuff that just isn't working. More of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us.
Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, in the news, you hear it all the time. Little, Just little stories that come out from the candidates. Um, and I mentioned them earlier. Donald and his uh, brief little run-in with the Pope. Um, his comment at a religious university where he talked about the, the Bible verse 2 Corinthians. Kind of showing his hand that maybe he's not as devout as some might think. And... Uh, Ted Cruz's father has said some things that seem a little extreme uh, religiously. But in in the end, you know, religion and politics have been intertwined in our country's history uh, since the beginning. Um, But one of the things that they're finding out, many researchers have claimed that religious activity is declining, except a a Pew Research study stated that roughly three quarters of Americans, 77 percent, still identify with a religious group. And a growing number of people in both Republican and Democratic parties want their political leaders to publicly discuss their faith. So how influential is a candidate's religious affiliation in the election process, and how are we seeing it affect the election today? Remember, even the last cycle, presidential cycle, Mitt Romney, a Mormon, running, and was that going to be a big deal? Remember, that came out as a story for a while, all the way back to Ted Kennedy being a a, – Uh, John Kennedy being a Catholic, and was that going to impact it? Well, joining us today is Dr. Kenneth Wald, a distinguished professor of political science and the Samuel R. Budd Shorstein Professor of American Jewish Culture and Society at the University of Florida. He's also uh, the author of the book Religion and Politics in the United States, which I believe is in its seventh seventh edition. And so we welcome him here today, Dr. Kenneth Wald. Thanks for being with us. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks. Honestly, you uh, you hear about religion all the time. There's something. It, it's almost like you hear about it in Iowa. You you don't hear so much about it in New Hampshire, but then it really comes to a boil down in South Carolina. And when they start hitting the Bible Belt, talk about uh, the impact of religion and politics. Uh, you know, historically, How, where did it all start? How did it all play out? Well, um, yeah, that's, a, that's a, of course, a question that could uh, keep us going for quite a while. Let me, let me just observe that uh, both throughout the world and in the United States, uh, religion has long been entangled with politics uh, in a variety of ways. And uh, in the United States, of course, it was primarily uh, uh, something that we've had since the beginning because we are such a religiously diverse population. And, you know, religious identity is often a very important part of people's personal identity, and it's not surprising if people think of themselves in religious terms that uh, they would look at political issues from that perspective and that they would look at potential candidates for office from that perspective. Hmm. And the other way around, of course, candidates who want to win uh, ask themselves how they can appeal to groups of the electorate, and when you know people's religious identity is politically relevant, uh, it's pretty inevitable, I think, that you will go after those. So I think we get it both from individuals and from the perspective of, of the candidates as well. I mean, even in the um, Supreme Court, Justice Antonin Scalia's passing uh, and the need to now choose another Supreme Court justice, the religion again comes to the forefront because of, you know, abortion issues and uh, other issues that are going to be kind of you know, coming before the court, it, it, it really, I guess it is. It is, it's it's a major part of every, of our identity. And then every one of these issues kind of becomes polarized, it almost seems, because of the religious push. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's interesting. You referred to the election of John Kennedy in 1960. Yeah. 
Uh, and for many people in my discipline of political science, um, that election actually kind of took their interest away from religion. Because if a Catholic president, you know, a Catholic could be elected president in an overwhelmingly Protestant country, it suggested that religion was no longer very hmm. important. So it kind of went off the agenda. And uh, even when it was there, it wasn't really emphasized. So the civil rights movement, to give an example, uh, was very much a church-based movement, as we know. If we right. think of the leaders, they're all ministers, they're all pastors. If we think of the uh, young men who and women who sat in at lunch counters, they were recruited by churches. But nobody kind of saw it in that way. So I remember when I was in grad school uh, 40 years ago uh, telling my my supervisor I was really interested in the role of religion in American politics, and he spent a good bit of time trying to talk me out of this, <laughs> saying there was nothing to study, uh, there was nobody who was There's nothing there. And, yeah, I ended up doing a dissertation about Britain in the 19th century because there I knew religion mattered and then came back to the United States, and this is about the time the Christian right was emerging. And suddenly, uh, you know, there was so much of it mm -hmm. that uh, I've been able to have a career for the next 40 years. So. It's interesting because, yeah, I think they they almost want it to keep fading, but it doesn't. I, I could sense, too, if, if Mitt Romney had, I guess, just being nominated may have had the same effect as a – or a similar effect as John Kennedy that, oh, again, religion doesn't matter because <laughs> now a Mormon's in there when they, many didn't even see Mormons as Christians. But it seems like, too, this kind of ultra-conservative wing of the of the GOP, for example, um, is very much driven by religious ideology. Yeah, you've, you've got a particular strategic phenomenon that I think explains what you're hearing, and, and it's worth emphasizing we're hearing most of this among the Republicans. We're mm -hmm. hearing relatively right. little among the Democrats. Right. Uh, and in some ways, in any other year, the Democrats would be the story because you have for the first time uh, a Jewish know. candidate who some people think is competitive and yep. has won a primary, and that had never happened before. But that's basically not, not anybody's focus. You know, the, the Republican phenomenon is this. They began an effort in the late 1970s to um, uh, really change their base uh, and heavily appeal to evangelicals. This was the rise, again, of the movement called the Christian right. Uh, and over time, uh, they succeeded in, to the point that evangelical Protestants, white evangelical Protestants, and even more specifically, white Anglo evangelical Protestants, have become the electoral base of the Republican Party. They're the most loyal and the most committed voters uh, in the party. They're not a majority, but they are, you know, extremely important in the party. And in a sense, now what has happened is with social changes, that's no longer quite the advantage it was uh, in the 80s and, and in the 90s, and there's been a reaction against this movement. Um, and consequently, the Republican Party is in a very difficult place because, mm. you know, you've got candidates like Cruz who see evangelicals as their base that pretty successfully has claimed them in competition with Ben Carson, but not certainly has not succeeded in getting the majority of their votes as we right. saw in South Carolina. Uh, but it's clearly it's something that, that, that in a sense, uh, you know, if you want to win the nomination, you – you know, you go with the voters who are most committed, who are most active, and most like to likely to turn up, and those are much more, you know, likely to be evangelicals than others. So, you know, if you don't appeal to them, you hurt your chances. But if you do appeal, you may have to take positions that really come to hurt you. Right. Uh, and that's kind of been the dilemma. And, and it really was a problem four years ago, and the Republican Party kind of tried to rebuild itself. But I don't know how you rebuild yourself when your ba when your base is the problem. So. Yeah, your base is is the yeah. is the issue. Is um, we also hear in the GOP and the conservative uh, side of things, we hear uh, they invoke uh, Ronald Reagan. 
and you know, um, mm-hmm. and, and his philosophies. But was Reagan was Reagan a religious person? Well, not in the conventional sense. Um, I mean, he respected religion and he had no trouble talking about moral issues, but it was hard to see him as personally, you know, religious. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you've really got, I think, kind of three wings within the Republican Party right now. You've got the evangelicals, um, you've got the libertarians, uh, and they're sort of in uneasy uh, coexistence, particularly in the Tea Party. And then you've got what are broadly called, you know, moderate Republicans or Republicans who are typically fiscal conservatives, but not necessarily social conservatives. Mm. And the challenge right now is that, you know, the people who turn out disproportionately in primaries are the evangelicals and to some extent the libertarians. So that's where candidates have had to had to focus their their message. Um, But it's a it's a real it's a real it's a coalition that is difficult now to pull together in a way. This used to be the Democrats problem. They had all these groups together who, you know, urban workers, uh, ethnics, uh, white Southerners, African-Americans. And it was very hard to sort of craft an appeal. But gradually their coalition has shifted and it's much more um, it's easier, I think, to find common ground. Republicans are having a very difficult time finding common ground. And that's what really what you're seeing. In yeah. What do you see happening with um, because the Democrats, they do kind of they seem to stay out of the fray. It seems like they can maybe talk uh, religious values and beliefs, but they don't usually get into invoking God um, in their speeches and 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 that. But um, is it but it's interesting to me because uh, Hispanic voters, which might tend to be uh, go with Democrats and um, black voters, there, there tends to be a strong religious component to both of those groups, right? Yeah, it, it, it has been something of an issue, particularly for Latino Protestants, uh, <clears throat> who, while not a majority, are a significant share of the Republican Party. Um, and they're not simply the Cubans from my state of Florida. They're, they're significant Latino Protestant communities around the country. Uh, and they tend to be much more like evangelicals in their social values. But again, economically, that's often what drives their vote because, again, disproportionately, they tend to be working class and, and benefit from the kinds of social welfare policies <clears throat> sorry, mm-hmm. that uh, Democrats have, have pursued. Um, the Democrats you know, do have some diver- diversity. For example, they have a relatively large share of people who are not religiously affiliated, um, and they have a large share of people whose religion really manifests itself in a kind of a social gospel approach. Um, where they see, you know, the prophetic tradition, again, primarily in terms of, you know, treating people justly in the economy and criminal justice and so forth. And that's, you know, that's in a sense the the position that you see in both um, Bernie Sanders uh, and Hillary Clinton. You know, they're, they, they, they will not talk in great detail about their faith mm. and they will not constantly invoke the Bible, but they will, they will often cite, you know, this sort of social justice emphasis is what's driving them. And that, that seems to work reasonably well for Democrats. Uh, now it seems to be a kind of a centrist position that appeals to most most voters in the constituency. Yeah, I guess that's it. So they're kind of more issue maybe oriented social justice issues, but they don't necessarily tie it to their religious values. Because I mean, also I also think of um, is isn't uh, a large voting group of of Jewish coalition also a part of the Democrats? I mean, it just seems interesting to me that that they're not more allied to a conservative. View, but really, I guess it's social issues that are pulling them more to the left. Well, I think I think it's it's the kind of we we have a problem with language. People talk about values, voters, and social issues as if these were only conservative kinds of positions, and these were only evangelicals. And and it's worth understanding there is a religious left. 
um, which thinks of the Bible and the religious messages as relevant across a broad right. swath of issues. Uh, and they, they are responsive to those issues. They're not as numerous as people on the right. Uh, but they would argue that, you know, a, a religious issue would be how you treat, you know, Syrian refugees. Right. I've even seen evangelicals criticize the party, the Republican Party, for some of the things it said. So I think in, in that sense, the Democrats are more in tune with their constituency. And frankly, they're more in tune with what's happening among young people. Because, you know, while, the, while you can debate a lot, as you mentioned, about how secular a nation we're becoming, and in some senses, yes, in some senses, no. There's no question that young people are increasingly detached from organized religion, but are quite strongly mobilized on social justice arguments. So the kinds of things that the Democrats talk about uh, are, are very powerful. Um, and that's why you know, see a lot of young people at Sanders rallies and things of mm. that nature. And, and for Jews as well, this is really their primary political concern is, is questions of social justice. Uh, most American Jews, again, are, are you know, are, pre, are, are quite liberal. Yeah. Um, there are exceptions. There are the Orthodox. There are the, re, the relatively recent Russian Jewish immigrants. But um, by and large, the bulk of the population is, is looking for those broader issues. And they're also, and this is true of many on the Democratic side, many of the voters, they're uncomfortable with what they call God talk on yeah. the campaign. Uh, so when Ted Cruz, you know, you know, celebrates his victory in, in Iowa by saying, you know, all blessings be to God and turns it into a prayer rally, it turns off a lot of Democratic voters because it seems to be, as my mother would have said, wearing religion on your huh. sleeve. Um, even so, faithful, so even believers are still turned off by it. Very, yeah. very, very much so, yeah. Um, and so, you know, in a sense, that works for evangelicals. Um, that's why Ted Cruz has mm -hmm. done better among them than any other voting group. He still hasn't captured them. Um, but nonetheless, uh, it is it is a powerful motif in the Republican Party, and and there are Republican candidates who are frankly uncomfortable with these kinds of displays. Uh, you know, you mentioned Mitt Romney four mm -hmm. years ago, John McCain eight years ago. Uh, these were people who clearly, I think, are, are religious and have have faith, but again, they're, they they see it as kind of inappropriate yeah. to talk about this in the public square. Oh, that's interesting. And, and what a, what a, I mean, it shouldn't be such a great insight that you've brought us about. I mean, there's values, there's value uh, voters on every side of the issue. They just are interpreting what love is, what, you know, lifting another is uh, differently. I think it's powerful. Um, let's, let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Kenneth Wald, and he is uh, the author of the book Religion and Politics in the United States uh, in its seventh edition now, and he's uh, one of the nation's experts in religion and politics and the impact um, of, of uh, religion in the political sphere. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion. I want to get into uh, a little bit about what, what, you know, the religion or religious views um, – and Donald Trump, how, how they're going to mesh together and uh, get some ideas from Kenneth Wald on that. Stick with us, folks. We'll continue the discussion. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. everybody to the Matt Townsend show. You know, um, you, you can't watch the political uh, positioning of all of these candidates without and he's sticking around, especially I think in the GOP side, without hearing 
the many, many issues that could come up um, that, that involve religion and a person's identity with religion, whether it's abortion, whether it's, uh, you know, we, we were talking about earlier about Syrian refugees coming in. And, I mean, even how you go about thinking about helping people that are fleeing from war, it, in some way it's got to fall back on your value system. Um, but many times, too, especially you see it, I think, in the GOP, there's a lot of play around religion. And, and, and in fact, there was a, uh, um, some protesters tried to perform an exorcism on Ted Cruz. And one of the things he fired back, it was a weird scenario, uh, some hecklers did, but he basically just fired back this one phrase that was that I think sums up some of the division we have in our world and in our country. He, uh, if Ted fires back, usually lefties don't believe in God. And I'm sure the crowd roared and it was a great moment. Um, today joining us, though, is Dr. Kenneth Wald, who is is an expert in studying um, religion and politics. He's a distinguished professor of political science from the University of Florida. He has written about the relationship of religion and politics in the United States, Great Britain, and Israel. His most recent books include Religion and Politics in the United States, The Politics of Cultural Differences. Um, really, he's, he's, got, he's got what we need, the skills and the information we need. So we're trying to pick his brain and learn as much as we can about how religion plays a role in our political process. Dr. Kenneth Wald, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Matt. What do you think... Um, Going forward, I mean, it is you, you made a great point that we have the first Jewish presidential uh, candidate that's uh, I mean, not candidate, but um, that's succeeding and flourishing and very well could be the first Jewish president or nominee. We also have the first female. And then on the GOP side, we have Donald Trump and Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio and and Kasich and by the way I'm sure you saw Kasich uh have that moment with one of the members of his crowd that was crying and uh he hugged him it was a beautiful moment and even Kasich uh, you know invoked God and and basically shared his beliefs in God is is there I guess is there history for this is there precedence of this was this going on 100 years ago were we invoking God as much then in our in our presidential candidates you know, I, I think if you look back to the early republic, um, <clears throat> from time to time the religious background of the candidates became an issue. I'm not sure the candidates engaged in the degree of, again, what's called God talk that they do today. Uh, again, the, the predominant style of religiosity was different then, so I think that would have seemed a little unseemly. But, you know, there were certainly attacks on Thomas Jefferson um, where he was accused of being a heretic and an infidel. Hmm. And, I mean, he really was very different than traditional Christians in that he considered Jesus not to be divine, and, and he rewrote the Bible to take out all the what he thought of the miracles. And this, the Jefferson Bible, as it was known, became a controversy uh, in his presidency. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, when he became president, because he was not a member of a formal denomination, uh, was often accused of being you know, uh, insufficiently religious or pious. But, but I don't think that was the major factor. And, and again, um, you know, there are times when religion has been more important. Uh, one goes back to, let's say, the turn of the uh, 20th century, 1896, when my uh, uh, fellow Nebraskan William Jennings Bryan uh, famously stood up before the Democratic Convention in his effort to promote uh, uh, going from the gold standard to the silver standard and, you know, said, you shall not press down upon, you know, my brow this crown of thorns. You know, you shall not crucify me on a cross of gold. Hmm. So you have 
certain candidates for whom this has been important. And, you know, Woodrow Wilson's uh, Presbyterianism was an important factor. And again, we've seen it with candidates and so forth. I think it's, you know, I don't know if it's more overt today or just because of the news cycle where we're hearing it more often. Uh, candidates are, I think, deciding it's good to be seen as religious in some way. Again, particularly if you're seeking the Republican nomination. Right. Uh, on the Democratic side, it has to be finessed a bit. But um, uh, it, it's also, again, it's also been a problem. It, it has helped Republicans in primaries as individuals, but it has tended to hurt the party in the last set of general elections. And my guess is that if either Cruz, uh, if Cruz is nominated, that would certainly uh, continue to be the case. Uh, in Trump, I think it's a it's a different set of issues, and in Rubio, I don't know. I think again, they're also going to be different issues. But uh, yeah, so I, I think you know we're just more aware of it now. Can faking it become a problem? I mean, it it seems like uh, you know it it might hurt Donald if he keeps bringing up mm-hmm. two Corinthians. Yeah, there there are certainly again evangelicals who. Um, don't like candidates who, as they put it, haven't, you know, have tried to talk the talk without walking the walk. And there's a sort of sense of of authenticity. There was a great example of this uh, some years ago when Tim Kaine was running for governor of Virginia. Uh, he was a Democrat. Mm-hmm. And when people ask him, you know, his position on capital punishment, he said, I'm against it uh, because my, my religion teaches me it's morally wrong. He's a, he's a Catholic. And people who knew Tim Kaine, who'd had years of experience uh, with him, knew that he was a very devout Catholic, that every summer he went and did good works in South America, that he was educated in, in Catholic schools. And, and, and so he was credible when he said this, and, and he won quite handily in that election in a state that has a lot of evangelicals. So he, he was seen as being authentic, and, hmm. and that, that worked. Uh, George W. Bush's rise to political power really in part came about because, again, he was familiar enough with evangelical, the evangelical world to be able to you know, come across as you know, authentically evangelical, even though he comes at it from a less evangelical denomination. So I think, yeah, I, I think I think the part of what's going to hurt Trump among some people is that he doesn't seem to be authentic. And it's not just, you know, between 2 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. I think more broadly um, his talk is, is a problem. But there's something else I think is important, and that is that evangelical leaders have pretty early on learned that they can live with a candidate who isn't an evangelical or isn't very religious, provided that candidate takes the right positions and wants to win the election. Right. Um, so I don't know that that's going to hurt Trump. Um, I heard Jerry Falwell Jr. Uh, in his endorsement said, well, you know, we're not voting for our pastor-in-chief. We're voting for commander-in-chief. Um, now, that's not they're not entirely consistent about that because certainly part of the reason they went after Bill Clinton in the 90s was they felt he was immoral. But this time Trump pretty much gets a pass on his multiple <laughs> marriages and right. things of that nature. So, yeah, so it, 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 it can be – it can seem fake and you have to know what you're talking about um, and speak in a way that does convey authenticity. Do you sense um, – I mean I guess what might hurt him in a primary election, maybe his lack of religiosity, may actually be an advantage in the general uh, because Donald Trump's probably not going to be invoking God you know, inappropriately and maybe many Democrats might like that he's a little more neutral on that. Well, I don't know. I, I, you know, I, I think there are just so many issues with Trump that the religion <laughs> is just one small factor, right. you know, in the mix. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't know if it will matter. I mean, I think if somebody asks him a question, uh, it's in his nature to answer and answer in a way that reflects his ego. 
Um, and, you know, he's the greatest physical shape of all time. He'll be the best jobs president. You know, <laughs> African-Americans love him. Yeah. You know, he's the best Christian he's the there best. is. I mean, yes, it's just who he is. Yeah. I mean, he's just, he's his, you know, I, I think you need a large plane to fly him around because it has to be able to host his ego as well as him. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't know that it's going to be a big factor among the many factors that are there. Do you think, just a guess, and we only have a few more minutes, but one of the big issues that has that's come up recently is religious liberties and um, with the with with the um, gay marriage initiatives being um, accepted and allowed, and the LGBT um, you know movement on on certain issues. It seems like. Uh, religious liberty is is a big issue where will religion still be able to exercise their conscience and not be forced to do marriages and stuff? Do you sense going forward that a candidate or a president will matter in that argument? Well, I think um, you're right to identify this claim of individuals to be exempt from public law on grounds of religious conscience. That that has been an issue. It's not a new issue. It's taken on additional power since, uh, again, the Supreme Court uh, struck down limits on gay marriage. But, you know, we used to have issues about, you know, pharmacists refusing to dispense right. uh, birth control to unmarried women or people who specialize in in vitro fertilization refusing to provide their services to unmarried women and things of this nature. And again, claiming a sort of conscience clause. Um, it will matter, I think, only in who comes before the Supreme Court. Um, but the peculiar thing about that is it's not the usual alignment, because um, the most decisive blow against a religious liberty argument as an exception to general laws was actually written by the late Justice Scalia. Who, oh, wow. You know, his conservative credentials yeah. uh, don't need any, uh, any repetition right. here. Um, in Employment Division v. Smith, he basically said that, you know, I'm sorry, um, you know, if the state has a rational basis for passing a law, there's no basis for exempting people on religious grounds, um, unless there is specific provision made for this. There's no constitutional obligation. So the issue is not necessarily a simple one as far as that goes. Right. But again, the president's important, I think, would only be in terms of the Supreme Court vacancy that we have now and the ones that are, that are coming up. Yeah. Wow, it's it is it's such a deep issue, isn't it, uh, Doctor Wald? Because it'll it just it's every part of every decision of every of every view. A lot of the tension in the country could, I think, even be tied to this this religious and political debate. Um, as we, what would you say, uh, just as we wrap up, what's what should we do? Just as ev- the average person, our own belief system, our own religious value system, any ideas on what we should do to just to to balance our own views, the views of others, and our own political persuasion. Well, yeah, these are these are tough decisions to make, and so I'll, I'll make a general argument that would incorporate that. Um, one of the questions I always like to ask people when we get into political discussions is, you know, why do we have elections? You know, why why do we vote? And for a lot of people, it's a matter of of what I call, you know, uh, personal expressiveness. You know, I want to feel good. I want to send a message. I want to say something. And while I certainly understand that, it seems to me that the purpose of elections is to choose people who can manage the government. Now, their values matter, understanding the policies they're going to pursue matters. And and certainly one hopes they'll pursue values that are consistent with, you know, the individual voters' uh, uh, personal values. But as I think everybody said, our sacred scriptures are not political textbooks in the narrow sense. They don't say that 
Um, you know, they, they may make statements about preferred sexuality, but even there, they don't address gay marriage. They don't address um, specific cases of refugees beyond the general advice to, you know, respect the stranger because you were strangers in Egypt, that sort of thing. So I think it, 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 I would be very cautious of candidates who draw straight lines between particular passages of sacred scripture and their political positions. But I would also, you know, go back to the question, you know, you're choosing somebody who's going to manage the government and sending a message and, and so forth is, of, is, is, is to my mind, is, is, a, is a lesser purpose. That's mm. not really why we should vote. Um, and I know that's a very sort of uh, unpopular yeah. thing to say, but it's, you know, no, but uh, it, ultimately after, there's going to be a government after the election. That's For right. Me, it matters who's going, to, who's going to be running it and setting the priorities. Yeah, and maybe go find another way to express your personal position. Yeah, as, as my father always liked to say about movies he didn't like, if you want to send a message, go to Western Union. So. There you go. <laughs> send a message. <laughs> or go to, go to, to That's right. Now you just can get on the internet and go right. to a chat room. Right. Dr. Kenneth Wald, we appreciate you. Thank you so much for your, uh, your insight on this. Okay, Matt. It was a pleasure to be with you. You bet. Take care. Great stuff. Um, and what an interesting point, really. Uh, do, you want a, do you want somebody that can manage your government? And Go make your own expression of values and beliefs uh, in another way. We don't always have to mix it, and everything doesn't have to be a stand for something. Um, Obviously, there's a time and a place for some. Um, Is this the time and the place? And if you have to make your stand at the expense of everyone else, maybe uh, it's not a great stand. We'll take a break, folks. We'll be right back. The Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Talk about good. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, It's politics, folks, and it's religion, and you can have your religious views, and you don't have to get sucked into uh, a political debate about you know, extremist ideas and hating of other people. Mark Twain has a quote that says, never argue with stupid people. They will drag you down to their level and then beat you with experience. (laughs) And that might, uh, nothing could be truer than in the political world. Again, you can have your beliefs and I honor that. I love that. And simultaneously, we can still honor and respect others and others' rights to have their own views, their own values. Um, powerful stuff, folks. Go check us out on iTunes and tune in. Go find our BYU Radio app. Download that so you can get back to all of our podcasts, hundreds of them, uh, for you to archive and, and to go listen to. 